This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Central Station. If you're following this short series on cultures of thinking with Simon Brooks, then it's likely you've spent a bit of time thinking about, well, thinking. It seems like a strange thing to do, but when you consider the idea of a culture of thinking, either at school or the workplace, or even just in your own life, then it can become quite a useful thing to ponder. Part of creating cultures of thinking involves asking great questions. Just what kind of questions are there, and how do we best use them? Is it sometimes better to just simply use a directive? As my conversation with Simon continues, we delve into the concept of a typology of questions and what that means for effective use of questions in the classroom. So, you've alluded to this already, and in your presentations, I know that you talk about this thing called a typology of questions. Mm. What does that mean? So once again, this, and I must acknowledge that this comes from Ron Richard's research, and my role as an educational consultant is I'm not directly attached to Project Zero, but I'm inspired by Project Zero ideas, and because I've been affiliated with them for so long, I work with schools to help them grow as teachers and as learning institutions around these ideas. So in terms of typology of questions, what Ron's research identified is that there are five main types of questions that we can identify that take place in classrooms. And those questions are review questions, procedural questions, generative, constructive, and facilitative questions. Okay, that sounds complicated. In a normal person's person's conversation or in a normal teacher's delivery of content, if I can put it as crudely as that, would a teacher say, hmm, I think I'm going to ask a procedural question. No, (laughs) no, wait a minute. No, I changed my mind. I'm going to make it a generative question. Here it comes. Are all these things happening in a millisecond? How, how, How does one learn this? Well, actually, we would love it if they did take that space to think about how they might bump up their question asking. (laughs) And some of it does happen in a millisecond, and some of it is learned behavior after practice, scheduled practice and specific attentive practice. But look, a, a procedural question would be a question like, does everybody have a pencil? And what the research has suggested is that often those types of questions might be better off just stated as a directive, like, you know, everyone get out your pencils, please. Do you know how many times I've been asked that question by students, as in, sir, do you have a pencil? How, I'd like to hear the precise number. Well, it's so many that I started responding by saying, what am I, a news agent? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, it seems like a good response. <laughs> I just think, well, they come to school with a mobile phone, then they come here and ask me for a pencil. Yes. Anyway. I mean, look, procedural and review questions, and those are the first two categories I mentioned, research suggests that those types of questions happen in classrooms, but they're not um, front and central in classrooms which aren't cultures of thinking. They're non-cultures of thinking questions. A review question might be the type of question that we ask to recall previous knowledge. So classically, it's going to be, can you guys remember what we talked about yesterday? Ah, and I'm not yeah. going to demonize that type of question. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely, absolutely, it's important to surface prior understandings. But if our question asking doesn't ever go much past review questions and procedural mm. questions, those are not the type of questions that are pressing for thinking. And we can't really build on that, can we? 
Because, I mean, if, if, you, if you ask a question, uh, can you remember what we talked about yesterday? Yes, I can. End of answer. Yeah. So, the, and even in just in terms of a review or a recall question, perhaps the, uh, the better question would be, can someone please explain what we talked about yesterday? That could be more powerful. And then it's a directive again rather than a question. So you, you were talking about uh, practicing this or uh, mm. cultures of thinking, thinking teacher being practiced in the art of using these types of questions. H- how, do you, how do you develop that? Through attention and application and purposeful inquiry. I mean, if we look at one of these other types of questions, let's look at generative questions, for instance. So generative, constructive, and facilitative questions are the types of question asking that we want to see in a culture of thinking. Mm -hmm. And if we talk about what a generative question is, well, that's the type of question that sparks and drives inquiry um, that might knit together a whole unit of learning under the banner of a question that, like a generator generates inquiry Mm. so for instance if i'm about to teach a a unit on the industrial revolution then a generative question that i might ask is what's more important people or profit now that question is what we would call generative because there is no very simple answer to that question no it's quite subjective depending on who you ask sure yeah so, I mean, I compose that question. We sometimes call these through lines as well as, a, as, a, as another core Project Zero idea. It, and the language of that's powerful. It's a question that runs through a whole learning experience from start to finish. Mm. So if I've got a question, what's more important people than profit? And let's, for instance, say I've just taught a lesson on the scavengers of the Industrial Revolution. And and scavengers, in case any listeners don't know, were children. This is horrific, by the way. (laughs) Children who were employed. That's right. Their job in the Industrial Revolution was to crawl underneath moving machinery, often in the cotton mills, because the factory owners were too unscrupulous to actually turn off the machinery to enable this process to happen. And the children would go underneath with a dustpan and brush. and sweep out all the loose bits of cotton. Now, there are numerous accounts of children being caught up in the machinery. I'm sure there are. Decapitation, unfortunately, is reported sometimes as a side effect of this. Yet, um, unscrupulous factory owners continued in this strategy, right? So if I've just taught a whole lesson about the scavengers, I've then got a beautiful opportunity to say, okay, guys, how does what we've been learning about scavengers today cast light on our guiding question here what's more important people or people or profit yeah okay questions that drive and seed inquiry take us to interesting places we're going to change our thinking in response to those questions as we move through the phases of a learning experience and i guess that only comes with the with experience with time as a as a teacher thinks about what they've just asked when they look at the the results that they get from asking those questions and then seeing what sort of responses they're getting and then evaluating their own their, their own ability to to ask those questions Right, quite right, Colin. And, and here's the thing. When, when teachers get that experience of asking a generative question and, and seeing the, the value that comes from it, they get hooked. They feel its power. They feel the energy that it brings to a learning experience. And that's compelling for teacher and student. I want to ask you about an easy trap to fall into. I mean, I think this is an easy trap to fall into. And I also think it's one of the most difficult traps to get out of. Uh, we, we, I think we may have touched on this in a, in a previous podcast some mm. years ago, but I'd, I'd love to ask your, your views on this again. Oh, it might have changed our well, thinking. You never know. Yeah, you never know. But it's the guess what's in my head trap. 
No. I now think that's excellent. I've changed my mind on that. I think yeah. it's an outstanding practice. <laughs> well, great. So not so much of a trap after all. Well, I think it's a trap. So perhaps you could help me through this. Yes. Um, um, I'll back away from my facetiousness. <laughs> um, well, the, yeah. the th- well the, th- the reason why I ask is because I often find myself, uh, when I was working in a classroom, when I was actually teaching, that I would ask questions. And then I would think, wait a second, you're really just asking them to guess what's in your head. Mm-hmm. Uh how do you, why, why do we so easily fall into this trap? Why do you think you were doing it? Uh, well, actually, interesting. Hang on a second. This is my show. I, I, ask, I ask the questions. <laughs> but since you are so politely, um, I think it's probably because I was utterly convinced of the answer. Either maybe it was factual or maybe it was subjective. So maybe it was a fact as in, you know... Uh, what size does this does this particular thing need to be in order for that to function? So that there would be an absolute uh, answer for that. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps if it was more subjective, that I was completely and utterly convinced of my own opinion, whilst also being willing to accept other interpretations, but wanting to first of all draw out, I guess, I guess what I think before what the student thinks. Yeah. And look, you're not alone in this, Colin. I think. I mean, I've certainly fallen into the trap of guess what's inside teacher's head on numerous occasions and it's certainly a game I played a lot in my early years of teaching and a game I still play sometimes even now when I run I can I feel myself starting to do it when I'm even running professional learning sessions with teachers and I try to pull out of it because Mm. at the end of the day if we're playing guess what's inside teacher's head well wouldn't it just be quicker to tell them (laughs) why don't we just tell them it saves a lot of time then we can use that time for other things that uh that provide deeper learning yeah well that reminds me of the text message thing in fact i'm not going to ask them you know i'm not even going to tell them i'm just going to text them because they're probably looking at their phones rather than looking at me anyway this is true (laughs) i mean the the model we actually describe that guess what's inside teacher's head model and we use an acronym to describe and we sometimes call it qre so qre stands for question response evaluate uh-huh. So in essence, I'm saying to the children, here's my question. Then they, risk, they give me an answer in response to it, and I'll say yes or no. And that's it. So what I'm using is I'm using the question to judge whether or not they're able to say back at me what I want them to say. That's inside my head. Right. Now, we would argue that that's not an appropriate use of questioning. And we would offer an alternative model for questioning. And it's a model that I, I call catch and pass, um, other writers such as Jim Minstrel have different names for it. They call it the reflective toss, but it's something that I've called catch and pass. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's a rich model of classroom interactions. That's, that's, it's how we put thinking front and central. So I need an example of when I get into this situation, because as you say, it, it can also happen when you're providing, uh, when you're doing professional development seminars. And I think it could probably happen anywhere like in the work environment you might actually be asking your your colleagues some questions thinking i really wish you could just say what's in my head how then when you realize that you're doing it can you quickly pull the ripcord or press a special button and weasel your way out of this how, how do you how do you fix it on the fly so the first thing to i think develop is a, is a rich understanding of what we mean by something like catch and pass right that's starting point so if I, i'll talk about that for a few seconds and then i'll address the how do we change please do aspect of your question please do so catch and pass as the name suggests comes in two phases so we have the catch phase the pass phase 
the catchphrase is we've asked children a question. Now let's let's imagine that it's quite a generative question. It's rich. There's multiple mm-hmm. possible answers that they could come up with. So I might ask my class, for instance, why do you think that um, Iago hates Othello so much? If we're learning Shakespeare's play Othello, mm-hmm. children come up with an answer. They respond. My first responsibility is to catch that response. So what we mean by catch is I show them I've heard them. You're validating them. Sure, yeah. I might paraphrase it back at them. I might even say, can I just check I've heard you right? So Mm. you're saying that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And they might go, yes. So then I've caught it. Or they might go, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. In which case we can say, well, can you say it again Mm. so I can be sure I've heard it? So we catch. We show that we've heard. And then we pass. So the pass is, is offering a question as an intellectual gift to stretch their thinking further. The question in itself is going to lead them to construct more understandings than they currently possess. That's why I ask questions. You know, that's why a teacher in a culture of thinking asks questions, because we believe that by asking questions, we are helping them learn. That's a very different way of conceptualizing questioning than thinking that I'm asking questions to check that they've remembered what I told them yesterday. Yeah, it's a very different idea of of actually thinking about how to, if I can put it this way, deliver content. Because historically, we've always thought about delivering content. I guess what you're asking here or what you're suggesting here is more of a, how do we explore this content? How do we make this content come out and be alive and be real and be understandable? Sure. And and for most people, when they're on the end of Catch and Pass, although the first few times they're on the end of it, as we touched on earlier, it can feel a bit intimidating. But after a while... They experience it as enabling and supportive and compassionate and showing that somebody actually cares about me, that somebody sees me. Mm. They want to hear more about what I'm thinking because they're asking me to share more of what Mm. I'm thinking. So this is where I'll connect through to the other part of your question, which is how do we get better at doing this? Yes, how do we weasel our way out (laughs) of of the trap? (laughs) So one very practical suggestion would be that the ultimate um, catch and pass question is what makes you say that? So Mm. what would it be like if we just made a huge laminated poster and we stick it on the desk in our classroom as a constant aid memoir that this is something we're working on? Mm. And we look at it and we make ourselves do it. What would it be like? This is a challenge I give some of the schools I work with. What would it be like if they have, what makes you say that day? <laughs> well, everyone's just walking around saying, what makes you say that? <laughs> That's right, constantly. So what, we, what we're doing is we're not suggesting that teachers don't say what makes you say that or why, which is vaguely a similar thing. Because that would be a very patronising thing to say to teachers. <laughs> yeah, and I can just imagine some kid at recess going to the canteen. Could I have a sa- salad sandwich, please? What makes you say that? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that may not be entirely the appropriate place for it. But the idea of what makes you say that day is that teachers collectively agree to ask what makes you say that a lot more than they normally would of right. the students. So it's just to bring it onto the agenda for the day. Sure. And then they get together informally or formally and reflect on what they've noticed in consequence of making this shared effort. Normally what happens is people say, wow. Like that, that really injected so much rich thinking and so many ideas surfaced that I had no idea were going to surface. They feel such a payoff for themselves as teachers that they then want to do it more. And then the more they do it, the more it becomes enshrined as part of their behaviors. It just becomes built into the fabric of how they do things. Conversely, do you think that some teachers, when they look back at that experience, 
realize how much they don't do it. As in how much they don't ask questions like what makes you say that and how much they perhaps then could. Which is also a valuable reflection for them. Yeah, it's kind of the reverse of, of what you were just saying. But yeah. I mean, there's that. it's one thing to say, all right, let's all get together and make sure that we ask that question a lot more today. It's another thing to come back at the end of the day and say, do you know what? Normally, I just really wouldn't say that. Sure. And if we're going to make any change in life, we have to feel a payoff, don't we? Like, yeah. There's got to be a reason for it. So step one is getting people to have a go and feel a payoff so that they want to do it again. Do you think the students notice when teachers are constantly asking, guess what's in my head questions? I think so. I think they can tell straight away. And so <laughs> they'll buy into that game and play it. Whether that playing that game is in their best interests is another thing. Do they do they react against it? Do they say, "Oh, look, you know, can you ask us something different?" Or are students just quite happy to play into that game? Is that is that like a safe space for them? I think they're happy. I think many students would rather play that game than what makes you say that game, because it's easier. Mm. Do you think that's because we default more easily to something that is, by and large, just easy? Perhaps. Perhaps it's. It's more built into the fabric of how society works. It's many people's expectations of how questioning works. It is how questioning works for so many other people in so many other places. When we start conceptualizing questioning differently, we're building a new culture, something different for many people. And sometimes it can take them a while to adjust and to find value in it. In the next episode, we look at what happens when people just aren't into cultures of thinking in the same way that you might be. How do you respond when someone says, yeah, sounds great, but it's not for me? I'm sure that people are thinking that on numerous occasions. And sometimes people have been brave enough to give voice to those types of ideas. <laughs> I actually, um, yeah, it's very rare that people are um, utterly vociferous in their condemnation of the ideas that I share. Oh, that was very um, eloquently yeah, <laughs> Thank you very said. much. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's very clear that the ideas gel with more people, with some people more than others. But if Cultures of Thinking does resonate with you, and you'd like to hear more about engaging learners with better thinking, then make sure you join us for the next episode. This podcast is brought to you by Central. And remember, you can subscribe to Central Station on your favourite podcast app, on the device of your choice, completely for free. If you know a colleague that would benefit from these discussions with Simon, then please share them. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>